This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Bill Southworth looks at what life was like in North Otago during the First World War. Judy Southworth reports on the novelist J.B. Priestley's visit to Dunedin, and Sarah Gallagher discovers the history behind a splendid mansion near Glenorchy. Bill Southworth now repeats the exercise by looking at how it was during the First World War in North Otago, in what was known as the Home Front. When the realities of war came to North Otago in 1914, it was a much different type of society to the one we live in today. 80% of exports went to Britain, which in return provided 60% of what was imported. Non-Maoris saw themselves as part of the British Empire and the British race. The Germans had placed both under threat, and the loyal men of New Zealand initially flocked to the colours and went overseas to Turkey and Europe to fight in their thousands. The population in North Otago was much smaller than it is today. There were 10,215 in Waitaki County and only 5,500 in the Omaru Borough. 400 of the young men would die on the battlefields of Turkey, France and Belgium. However, at the outset of the war, there was much enthusiasm for the war, which no one anticipated would see much heavier casualties than the ones that had gone before it. When the outbreak of war was announced on the steps of Parliament in Wellington, cheering broke out. The Governor-General, His Excellency the Right Honourable Arthur William de Brito Saville Foljam, Lord Liverpool, read out the cable from the Secretary of State for Colonies in London, which simply said, War has broken out with Germany. In his book, The Home Front, Graham Leather writes, The announcement sparked a wild burst of cheering and a verse of the national anthem. The cheering lasted several minutes. Prime Minister Massey then spoke. He realised the country would need to make sacrifices, but he was confident that those sacrifices will be made individually and collectively, willingly, and in a manner in accord with the highest traditions of our race and the empire to which we belong. In Omaru, later that night, the first rally was held in North Otago at the Opera House. The mayor said the meeting had been called not in a jingoistic spirit, but in the spirit of pure patriotism. He expressed his approval of the statesmen in Britain who had made the decision to go to war. As the Omaru Mail reported next day, A patriotic meeting in the Opera House met the public spirit and provided a scene of enthusiasm such as Omaru has scarcely witnessed. The Union Jack waved in the hands of women and children. The 10th Regiment and the North Otago Pipe Bands were cheered while still playing in the street. The dense audience pulsated with the liveliest enthusiasm. Standing room was a privilege. The mayor said, Go ahead, John Bull. We stand by you till we have exhausted every penny, every man. The list of casualties started appearing in the local newspapers after April 1915. The headline, Casualties, was soon replaced with the title, Honours Roll. There were memorial services for ex-pupils. Pupils of Napara School unveiled a roll of honour. There were 17 names, 
but the list only included ten surnames. Five were mentioned twice, and one family three times. Eric Baum, an ex-pupil of Waitangi Boys High, recalled some of the bad news about Gallipoli. One night, the rector came into our usual meeting place in room two, where the whole school had prayers and cocoa and biscuits before turning in, and said, "You'll have heard of the first casualty lists from the front. Mr. Jennings is dead." At this, his voice broke, tears coursed down his cheeks. And with his gown flowing behind him, he almost rushed from the assembly. As the number of war dead increased, young men became more reluctant to sign up, despite the pressures being put on them by the local newspaper. Twenty thousand men have already entered the lists. The majority of them are in Turkey, and the fame they have won. The stay-at-homes may live their humdrum lives till the end of time. And not experience a single moment of the exhilarating and the transcendental satisfaction which these heroes won against the oppressor of their country, the assassination of the innocent, and the violator of virtue. Wake up, young North Otago! Swarm to the colours and bring the war to an end. Recruitment got so hard that later in the war, conscription was introduced. The prices of goods started to increase markedly. Food was being sent to Britain in large quantities, and the flow of imported goods slowed dramatically. It was admitted in Parliament that the price of food had increased by 34 percent. Thousands of socks, as well as balaclavas and scarves, were knitted and sent to the soldiers. This was later extended to sewn goods such as handkerchiefs and face towels. Each Christmas, groups of women got together and arranged gift parcels. One group gathered in a church hall in Omaru and made up three hundred parcels of tobacco and cigarettes, fruitcake, socks, chocolate, writing materials, and insect powder. During the war, the role of women in Britain underwent a dramatic change. Many were used as land girls to replace men serving overseas. Munitions factories were filled with women workers, and they also became ambulance drivers and nurses in droves. Despite being the first country in the world to give women the vote. Things were quite different in New Zealand. Women were largely dependent on their husbands and fathers for support, and were confined to what were regarded as their traditional roles as housewives and domestic servants. Families were much larger, and a third of women gave birth to five or more children. By 1970, however, at least the banks were finding new jobs for women. The Bank of New Zealand reported that we now have 297 women in the bank's employ. And it appears possible that circumstances will necessitate a further increase. The railways department also tried employing women. Though the New Zealand Railways Department is not inclined to employ women in railway work to the extent followed in England, where they are porters, ticket collectors, clerks, carriage cleaners, and engine cleaners, it's been decided to put women on the carriage cleaning work, and 60 are already employed. However, the scheme ran into difficulties and was not expanded. Carriage cleaning was one of the women's occupations, but it raised a question of equal pay to that of the junior male employees of the department, and the authorities are not prepared to concede that women are worth as much as men in this position. One new avenue of employment for women on the railways has opened up: 
a small number of reliable women have been engaged to take charge of the ladies' special carriages on the main trunk expresses. Five of these carriages will come into commission next week. When the war finally ended, there were parades in Omaru and all the small towns and villages of North Otago. The bands played, marches bearing flags and patriotic slogans gave the parades a carnival atmosphere, and politicians gave speeches about the manly virtues of the British race. The day after the guns fell silent in Europe, people of Kurao packed into Munro's Hall for a service of thanksgiving, then enjoyed less formal celebrations the next day. On Wednesday at 11am, the children of the district assembled at Kurao School and marched to the racecourse where the flag was saluted and a picnic was held. The afternoon was pleasantly spent in games and races. The ladies handed around tea. In the evening, a procession conveyed an effigy of the Kaiser to a suitable spot where it was hanged and burnt. In honour of the great occasion, the schools of Kurao and the surrounding districts have been given a holiday till Monday. In Omaru and other towns in the years that followed, war memorials with the names of the dead sprang up everywhere. The numbers of dead listed are still a shock to those who stopped to read them. In 1918, at the close of World War I, the president of Omaru Beautifying Society, Dr Alexander Douglas, proposed the North Otago Memorial Oak Scheme as a tribute to the fallen. Along the sides of roads, single trees or small groups of trees should be planted at intervals of a mile, and that each tree should have affixed the necessary protecting fence, a plate or tablet with the name of the fallen soldier, and further, that the tree to be selected should be the British oak. By 1919, when Viscount Jellicoe unveiled the scheme, 400 trees one for every North Otago soldier who died during the war, had been planted across North Otago. The plantings radiated outwards from the oak tree planted for Sergeant Donald Forrester Brown, VC, at the junction of the Wandsbeck and Seven Streets in Omaru. The silent agonies of the families of the 400 have long been forgotten. They also seem to have been forgotten by those who flocked to sign up for the next world war, just 20 years later. I'm grateful to the book The Home Front, North Otago, 1914-1918 by Graham Leather, a local North Otago historian. This is Bill Southworth reporting. The famous British novelist J.B. Priestley visited Dunedin in the early 1970s and was shown around by people from the university and the arts community. Judy Southworth has discovered that he had some interesting comments to make about the city. In a previous programme quite some time ago, we looked at the comments of well-known people who'd visited Dunedin. One of these visitors was author, playwright and travel writer J.B. Priestley. In this programme, we look only at his comments, as after his early 1970s visit, he wrote a book on this trip with the title A Visit to New Zealand. This programme takes extracts from the chapter he titled At Dunedin. Settled into the Southern Cross Hotel, it had been suggested that he contact artist Shona McFarlane. He did, and found her to be a well-informed, energetic host, bubbling with enthusiasm and with a wide circle of friends locally. 
As a member of the QE2 Arts Council, Shona had to attend a Wellington meeting of the council next day, so she'd planned a busy time for him. Priestley recalls this time as the peak day of his days in New Zealand. Hoping to provide me with a paint, Shona took us along the Otago Peninsula. Her choice was Sandfly Bay, but as we descended towards the sea, she agreed with me that it was far too windy to paint outdoors. Indefatigable and never lacking an idea, she moved us across the peninsula where Larnix Castle successfully defied the elements and all disasters except those provided by Larnix's own character and temperament. There was an arrangement that Fred O'Neill, an enthusiastic theatre man, should collect the picnic and bring it to us at the castle. Of Larnick, the New Zealand Encyclopedia tells us he was deservedly popular, being by nature open-handed and generous. But I, for one, would be more ready to honour his memory if he hadn't built a dungeon under his castle to lock up poachers and estate workers who came home drunk. My guess is that he was one of those very clever and ambitious financial men who had a silly side and subject to ideas of grandeur and folly. The fact that he built his castle as early as the 1870s, spending the equivalent of a million pounds, suggests that he suffered from hubris and finally paid the fatal price of it. The sun went out, the rain brought sleet with it, and Fred O'Neill arrived. We dived into the car to eat, and discovered that through the malice of the gods, most of the food had been left behind. But Fred now more than made up for the loss. He knew we'd want to visit the albatross nesting ground at Tyroa Head, and we were given permission to go beyond the severe fencing to give us a close-up of these astonishing creatures. Once we were out of the car, conditions were worse. We were now in albatross weather, the iced version of the roaring forties. In coats lent by the warden, we were able to get a good view of the birds. We were driven back to the city to the house of Shona's clever sister, Mrs. Francis, a painter. Laurie, her husband, just the man to host a party, and here we found good company and food and drink, a party in full swing. Among the guests were Gordon Buchanan, literary editor of the Otago Daily Times, Graham Billing, a writer awarded the Burns Fellowship at the university, and his wife Diana, who was to interview me later for her weekly The Listener. Professor and Mrs. Sawyer, the Gerard Currens representing the NZBC Talks Department, Mrs. Hannon, president of the Dunedin Repertory Society, her husband Jack, and daughter Debbie. There were a great many others, and represented a good cross-section of Dunedin intelligentsia. I had been pressed, one might almost say pressurised, to pay a visit to an amateur little theatre group. Finally, I agreed, as I hadn't been in contact with the theatre at all, amateur or professional, and this was hardly good enough for a visiting dramatist. I treated myself to a picture of what might happen. I saw myself meeting a small group of enthusiasts and then asking or answering questions, giving them, if they wanted it, the benefit of my years of theatrical experience, which was extensive and not limited to the writing of plays. 
And I was quite wrong. Nothing of the sort had been planned. True, I was shown and asked to admire the stage and the tiny 80-seat auditorium that had been ingeniously contrived of what had been part of a private house. But instead of a serious small group wanting to ask equally serious questions, what I found was a large, noisy party, apparently consisting of people no more interested in me and the present and future of the theatre than I was in the statistics of the timber trade. I didn't see why I should have been put under pressure just to catch this babble of self-important performers and a few superior patrons of this minican experimental theatre. Next day we drove along the high road above the north shore of Otago Harbour, descending to look at Port Chalmers, Carey's and Deborah Bay. After much toing and froing, I found something I wanted to paint. A quick jaunty, cheeky sketch. I was well satisfied with my morning. Next to the art gallery in the park. Its director, Mr. Lloyd, took us around. He seemed to me a courteous and sensible man, and this is higher praise than it might first appear to be, for while most people in charge of art galleries are courteous, not all of them are sensible. The Dunedin Collection offers no astounding masterpieces, but very little rubbish. It appears to be strongest in 18th century portraits, including some Gainsboroughs and early English watercolours, rather weak in 19th century work, though I noticed a good Tissot, and the best-known Dunedin artist, Frances Hodgkins, had two rooms to herself. Dunedin is an odd city though I hasten to add it's my first choice among the four cities we came to know. There was a time when I used to say that if I was kicked out of England, I would go at once to British Columbia and live just outside Vancouver. Now I think it would be Dunedin. It has the largest area of all the major cities, and yet it has the smallest population. Its certain grand civic style made me want to treble its population. While I was there, I never fully appreciated its fine buildings with their massive decorative fronts, their towers and spires. One needs a quick architectural eye, which I haven't got. I have enjoyed and appreciated Dunedin far more sitting back home, going through Shona McFarlane's portrait of a city, guided by her pencil and brush and affectionate jottings. I can't help feeling that what had been a noble attempt to create a South Pacific Edinburgh, with the best of it still there, had been leased more recently to Ohio and Southern California. The result isn't hopeless, but it is rather confused and messy. Furthermore, I was troubled by a vague feeling that the city must have been governed alternatively by wise men and blockheads. As I mentioned at the beginning, this extract is from the 1974 publication by Heinemann titled J.B. Priestley, A Visit to New Zealand. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. Paradise Valley near Glenorchy was once the site of a magnificent house. Sarah Gallagher has been looking at its history and how it fits into the story of an early Otago photographer. A recent opportunity to review Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga's listing report for Paradise in Glenorchy 
revealed the name of the man who built Eden Grove, the original Paradise House. Frederick Finch was the builder. He was born in 1835 in Rochester, England, the son of postmaster Edward Finch and his wife, Thomasine. A carpenter and joiner by trade, Finch trained at Green's Dockyards, Chatham in Kent, where the Royal Navy Dockyards were situated. As a young man, he joined several journeys as a joiner on the firm's steamers, including trips aboard the Prince of Wales and Agamemnon when they were transporting troops to Calcutta during the Indian Mutiny of 1857-1859. to Finch emigrated to New Zealand in 1870, arriving on the Clipper Otago on the 13th of October. He made his way from Dunedin to Queenstown on foot and was acknowledged as an early settler of Lake Wakatipu. In Queenstown, Finch worked as a carpenter in partnership with Charles Frederick Small. Together they were contractors on Mr Eichhardt's Queen's Arms Hotel, where Finch built the spiral staircase. It was a short-lived partnership which dissolved on Christmas Day in 1871. Finch is noted as owning a section on Camp Street. A photo by the Burton brothers from the 1870s shows a small shop on the site that bears his name. In addition to his trade... Finch was also a talented photographer. His obituary states he made photography a hobby nearly all his life, and many treasures in the storehouse of this branch of art were the creations of this clever knight of the camera. As a sidebar, it's worth noting this phrase was in deference to Sir Benjamin Stone, an English politician and photographer whose pseudonym was Knight of the Camera. Decades of reporting saw photographers around the world also described as such. Finch is first noted as a photographer in 1878 in the Lake Wakatip Mail, where he advertised four prints of the Great Queenstown Floods for sale. The Mail reported, We have some very good views of Queenstown during the late flood, taken by the local photographer, Mr F. Finch. The one looking along Reese Street and showing Eichardt's Hotel and the Remarkables as a background is excellent, both for effect and is showing the extent of the submergence. This is the only time he appears to advertise his photos for sale. Generally, Finch photographed landscapes around the Queenstown Lakes area including Lake Wakatipu, Mount Alfred, Mount Earnslaw, Diamond Lake and the braided river valleys of the Dart and Rees Rivers. Other photographs feature Rootburn, Frankton, Rere Lake, Bullendale, and views of Queenstown. A few images show people, vernacular buildings, and scenes from paradise. Finch was considered an excellent tradesman, and continued in his occupation as a carpenter and joiner after he and Small dissolved their partnership. In 1883, he was employed by William Mason, New Zealand's first architect and Dunedin's first mayor, to build a summer house for himself and his wife Kate at Paradise Flat at the head of the lake. This was Mason's last design. Mason named it Eden Grove. Stackpole, in his book William Mason, New Zealand's First Architect, doesn't acknowledge Finch's part in its construction, but notes Eden Grove was influenced both by the location, an allusion to the site, and the name of Mason's Auckland residence. In the following year of 1884... Artist Charles Bloomfeld was travelling in the area and visited the house. I had ridden up the valley of the Rees and around Diamond Lake, when, being caught in a heavy thunderstorm, I made for shelter to a house in the distance. 
On receiving a kind invitation to enter, I saw at once that this was something more than a shepherd's hut or a runholder's shanty. The house was well built and furnished with grace and comfort. Handsome pictures hung on the walls and a well-stocked library filled one side of the room. Feeling surprised at such signs of refinement in a place so far away from civilization, and no doubt showing my surprise in my face, I soon learnt that the owner of the house was a Mr Mason, a retired architect, who had chosen this spot for his summer home. Paradise subsequently became a guest house and an important destination for domestic and international tourists to discover the majestic mountains, lakes and valleys of the area. Following the Masons' ownership, husband and wife team David and Jeannie Aitken developed what became a successful tourism business for decades. Their children, Poppy and David, and grandchildren were also involved in the operation providing hospitality and acting as guides. The memoir of Barbara Heffernan, the Aitkins' granddaughter-in-law, recalls the variety of professors of this and that, doctors, medical and otherwise, school principals, teachers, surveyors and artists, who stayed at Paradise. Well-known photographers from Dunedin, Burton Brothers, and Muir and Moody also visited. J.D.S. Roberts, a freelance photographer for the Otago Witness and the Weekly News, stayed twice in 1937 to capture the area across the seasons. Early photographic postcards feature sites from the wider Glenorchy area, including sites around Paradise. These images of the landscape, combined with visitors' experiences, helped to drive the burgeoning local tourism industry. Finch's own photographs of Paradise, the lakes, rivers and mountains, may well have contributed to interest in the area. Certainly his photographs appear as mementos and albums, as well as individual prints and negatives, within New Zealand's collecting institutions. In 1898... Finch returned to Paradise as a labourer and consequently retired there and lived with the Aitken family. With David Aitken, he was a member of the Lakes District Acclimatisation Society. In one notable meeting, he reported on the great nuisance of the opossums residing at the head of the lake, saying, They are very fond of fruit and ate all of Mr Aitken's apricots last year. The animals would eat almost any vegetable and this season demolished 300 cabbage plants, which Mr Aikens had planted out. Finch clearly also maintained a good relationship with the Masons, as in May 1905 he was employed to build the Glenorchy Library, of which Mrs Mason was a patron. It was a small building, only 3.5 metres by 4 metres, but it was anticipated to afford ample accommodation for the storage of books for a good number of years. This building survives today, and Finch's joinery is still in good condition. Little is recorded about Finch's life over the following years. He died at age 84 on the 22nd of December 1920 at Paradise, and he was buried in the Glenorchy Cemetery on Christmas Eve. Frederick Finch's photographs and glass plate negatives are held in several collecting institutions in New Zealand, including Alexander Turnbull Library, Glenorchy Museum, Hocken Collections, Lakes District Museum, and Te Papa. Glenorchy Museum are currently digitising some of his glass plate negatives from their collection. It's exciting to think that just over 100 years after his death, Frederick Finch may finally have an exhibition of his work in a community he helped to build. 
You can find out more about Paradise on the Heritage List online at heritage.org.nz. This is Sarah Gallagher, reporting for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters will run at new times this season. Look for it at 9.30am on the first Monday of the month, then during that week on Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm, and it'll be repeated at those times in the third week of each month. Or you can listen to it as a podcast on the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.